I think we have the best legal system. It's just the people that implement it. They get lost along the way and forget what their job really is. He just kept on trying to remind me that who was in authority, who was in control, and how easy it was for my body to be found in any alley of New York City. It's a tough prison when you have the guards going against you because they are the biggest gang in the prison. They do that. They'll give a guy a life sentence and go home and eat spaghetti like it was nothing. And anybody that would say, well, why would you confess to something that you didn't do? My question to them will be, why wouldn't you confess when somebody's threatening to kill your life? The judge, he said, how you feel? I said, I'm okay. He said, well, today is your lucky day. You're going home. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have two very special guests. Jerome Morgan, who was exonerated after serving 20 years in prison in Louisiana in the worst possible conditions. Morgan was 17 when he was convicted of the murder of a 16-year-old at a party and was sent away to Angola for life. He proclaimed his innocence, but it wasn't until new evidence was discovered in prosecutors' files that Morgan's conviction was overturned, helped by two eyewitnesses who recanted, saying their statements more than 20 years earlier had been coerced by police. Kevin Johnson and Hakeem Shabazz were teenagers when they said they were coerced into naming Jerome Morgan as a shooter in the murder murder at a Sweet 16 party back in 1993. The DA's office finally dropped the charge last May. It was a triumphant moment for Morgan and his attorneys at Innocence Project New Orleans. A teenager who went to prison walked out as a 37-year-old man. And one of his attorneys is here as well from the Innocence Project of New Orleans, also known as IPNO. Kristen Winstrom is here. Jerome and Kristen, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go back to May 22nd, 1993, and even a little further back than that. You grew up in New Orleans? Yes, sir. Yes, I grew up in a neighborhood uh, called Butcher Train Park yeah, here in New Orleans. It, it was a, a neighborhood that was built for and by blacks in uh, 1955, right after Brown versus Board of Education, with the separate but equal uh, law that was written into uh, the Constitution. And so they had a lengthy history of ownership. And so, you know, I grew up in a culture of being able to take care of yourself 
and being able to take care of people, you know, that need your help, being a community. And did you have a big family? No, I grew up in foster care from the age of three until my wrongful arrest. My mom, she didn't receive a formal education. So her reasons were because she wanted us to have an education. She placed us in foster care, and that's how I ended up in the Putch Train Park neighborhood with a foster family by the name of the Johnsons. And on May 22nd, 1993, you were barely 17 years old. It just turned 17. Yes, sir. So you're still a child. Yes. Yeah, as a young young uh, male and, you know, going through the phases of puberty, of course, naturally, you know, as a young person, you struggle with your identity, you know, this this stage of puberty and just trying to find your identity. You ended up going to a party in a hotel ballroom. It was a Sweet 16 party. Yes, sir. And so it sounds like, you know, recipe for a good night. And then things went crazy. Yeah, well... Um... Just to back up a little bit, I was put out from the foster home in Train Park a day after my 16th birthday for being suspected of uh, selling drugs in the neighborhood. In 1993, my best friend was murdered. But before then, his mom called him in 1992 with some crack rock in his room. And so she called all of our parents, you know, his friends, because, you know, it was a group of us. It was friends that hang out every day. And so she called my foster parents and they in turn put me out. And so I didn't see my friends because I went to stay in another area in New Orleans in the 8th Ward with my aunt uh, who had a one-bedroom apartment on Franklin Avenue. And she stayed there with her daughter uh, who was a year younger than me. And so my friend Romeo Johnson asked me to come to the party because we hadn't been hanging out. Uh, and they wanted to, you know, spend some time with me. And so I agreed. We met up at another friend's house and walked to the party. And so we got there. Uh, I was very familiar with a lot of people there because my freshman year was spent at McDonald 35. And that's where the young lady whose birthday it was, that's where she attended. And by this time, all, it was, all of us was juniors at the time, or just finishing our junior year in school. And so uh, all I needed was two and a half credits to graduate. So, you know, it it was pretty much a friendly party until uh, two group of guys started to, you know, push and shove each other while dancing on the dance floor. And so that escalated. But one group of guys left out to, I guess, avoid anything that may transpire from that, that pushing and shoving, but then decided to come back in. And the moment they decided to come back in, the other group of guys that they was you know, getting into the skirmish with, you know, approached them and then they started to fight. And once the fight started, it was like a brawl. Many people were fighting and then shots erupted. And once shots erupted, I was standing uh, next to the speakers by the DJ table because I enjoy music. But once I heard the shots, my immediate reaction was to jump behind the DJ table and, and hide under the DJ table so that I won't get shot. Uh, a few of my friends in my peripheral, I could see them running in some of the same directions and then running into another room. How many people were at the party? Well, by record, over 80, because everybody had to enlist their names before leaving. But that don't account for the people that may have left as they were running from the gunshots. But at least 80 people were So it was a big, pretty big party. Yes, yes. Yeah, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. I mean, gunshots in a crowded place like that, anything could happen. You could have been shot. Right. So you're hiding under the table. Right. And uh, the shots ceased. Uh, you hear a lot of screaming, uh, yelling. I heard, in particular, somebody shot in the area where I thought I'd see my friend run to. So immediately my attention went to there. I left and went and went into that room and found a person that we was acquainted with was shot in the leg. And my friends were trying to help him. So I immediately took off my shirt because I see two wounds, entry wound, exit wound. I don't know where I learned it from, but uh, I took off my shirt to tie around his leg under the wound to stop the bleeding. But my shirt didn't fit because he was a kind of bulky guy. So my friend Romel Johnson snatched the table cart off of the uh, refreshment table to tie around his leg. And so once we tied that around his leg, we sat there until the ambulance came. And then the police were called quickly, right? Yes, yes. I'm sure probably a lot of different people probably called 911. Mm-hmm. And they showed up within minutes, right? 
Yeah. Well, but at the time, I had no knowledge of it. Like I said, I was in this adjacent room waiting with this victim until the ambulance came. So my personal knowledge of the police being there came about when we came out of the room with this victim and just let him go with the paramedics so they can get him to the hospital. But once I came out of there, it was like tables set up. It was ununiformed police there and uniformed police there. So I'm sure everybody listening is going, okay, well, so what's the story here? I mean, why would anybody possibly, there's over 80 people, because like you said, not including the people who left, they counted 80 people there. And obviously a lot of people probably ran right out the door. The people who are closest to the door, it's a safe bet. They went to the street and got the hell out of there. I want to ask Kristen this too. Like, again, it sounds like you're going home. And it's a very unfortunate incident. You actually acted in a very kind of heroic way for somebody who's not trained as a doctor or anything else. Maybe you saw it on TV or whatever, but you did what a concerned and honorable citizen would do, which is come to the aid of somebody who's been shot and bleeding. And you did you did what you could do in the circumstance and then stayed there till the ambulance came. That's, that's more than 90% of people w- would have done or did do, right? right? So it sounds like that's where this story ends. But it's not. So, Kristen, what what can you tell us? Like, how did he possibly become a suspect under this scenario? I mean, I know it's Louisiana and I know it's New Orleans and crazy shit happens here every day, all day and twice on Sunday. But tell us what happened. Well, to clarify a little bit, once the shots were fired, not only was Jerome's friend shot in the leg, but there was another individual who shot in the abdomen. He ultimately survived that shooting. And one boy, Clarence Landry, was shot and killed and he died there on the scene. And so that's how this became murder charge. But the reason that when our office looked at Jerome's case and we were committed to representing him, even though we didn't initially know how we were going to do it, is because by everyone's account, the gunman shot those bullets and then ran out of the room. It was a single gunman? Yes, single gunman. A lot of shots though. Let me think. I believe there were eight shots, seven or eight shots fired. That's a lot in a crowded room, but yeah, go yes. ahead. And so by all accounts, that gunman ran out of the room, as you would expect somebody who shoots a gun into a crowded Not room. Not just out of the room, but he left the building. He left the building. And when the detectives arrived a bit later after the initial police arrived, and they took down the names, phone numbers, addresses, school, social security numbers of every kid who was still in the room and kind of had them line up and asked them their information. I think basically was asking them, do you know anything? Everyone in the room gave them their basic information and said, I don't know who it was. I couldn't see it. They were then free to leave. And so there is in the police report a list of, I believe, 84 names. And Jerome's name, date of birth, address, social security number is listed there. By all accounts, he was in the room after the shooting. So the gunman fled. Jerome Morgan is still in the room. And somehow he gets convicted of this murder. So that's why we are always confident in his innocence. But I can tell you why he was convicted. (laughs) Let's talk about that because it is an insane story of incompetence, malfeasance, misconduct, carelessness, and just sort of a don't give a fuck about the truth type of attitude. They were fishing in the wrong pond, right? They knew that the actual perpetrator left. So what did they do? They decided to pick somebody from a group of people who should have automatically been excluded, right? And they lied in order to accomplish that goal. I mean, and they didn't lie a little. They lied a lot, right? Which is one of the things that makes this case an important case for people to know about because it wasn't a small lie. It was, it was a big lie, and it was a series of them that led to Jerome almost having his entire life taken away from him, but certainly his more than half of his life was taken from him. And had you guys not gotten involved, he would have died in prison. Yes, he had a sentence of life without parole. So that was a sentence in Louisiana. That's a sentence to die in prison. So Jerome, you were a boy, not a man. All of a sudden, you're a boy in a very grown up situation. So what happened? And then what went through your mind? Well, um, but, you know, I was there, you know, I was a witness I seen the fire from the gun, and I seen the guy laying down dead, and, you know, other guy shot. Now, the guy that was breaking up the fight, I didn't see him because from the record, he ran out into the lobby, and that's how they initiated the call to the police. Because as soon as he ran out, he ran into a lobby, and a person in there saw that he was injured and bleeding and called the police. 
you know, just that experience. But being in New Orleans is like, it's no surprise. At that time, you know, uh, New Orleans had a heavy culture and kind of rowdy music, bounce music, hype music. And that's what started the humbug between the two group of guys. You know, like I said, I was put out from the foster home. So I was staying with my aunt and, you know, we were poor. Usually when I was staying with the, in the foster home, you know, I was more well off because I had more community, more neighbor support. But I'm saying that because at this particular time, I had to go find some cheap clothes to wear to the party, something new. And at the time, the, the trend was Warner Brother T-shirts, you know, jeans, shorts, and tennis shoes, maybe some socks or something. But I say that to say this is what I bought on Canal Street that day to went to the party. And this is what the group of guys that got into with the guy who had fatally shot his friends wore that night. Warner Brother T-shirts and jeans, shorts tennis shoes. So my thing is, by a lot of people being aware of who I was and my friends, because we'd be at a lot of teenage events, you know, school dances, parties. Uh, we used to go to skate country a lot. So a lot of people are familiar with our face. And so they probably misassociated me with this other group. And the other guy that actually did it probably uh, resembled me in their perspective. So that's how I was associated with that group by, you know, these teenage rumors. But at the time, like I said, I needed two and a half credits to graduate high school. So I was trying to focus on that, especially since my mom initially put me in foster care to get an education. And so I was also working at Winn-Dixie at a grocery store. So I, I was trying to figure out my life as it would end as a teenager and as I would approach in being an adult. But, you know, I had a lot to figure out. I was reading about your case in the National Registry of Exonerations. And here's where it gets really weird, right? And I'm just going to read this right the way they wrote it. It says that in June 1993, so this is the next month, mm -hmm. shortly after the crime, police received a Crime Stoppers tip that the gunman may have been you, Jerome Morgan. The detective assembled a photographic lineup that included the photograph of you, your 17-year-old, mm -hmm and other people who had been at the party. This is where it gets weird. Two witnesses to the shooting were shown the photo lineup containing your photo. One witness did not identify anyone in the lineup as the gunman. And the other, Kevin Johnson, put, it says, put Morgan's photo aside, so I'm going to call you by your last mm -hmm. name here, and said, quote, he knew that guy from grade school and he was not the shooter. Now, I'm getting the chills mm -hmm. like I do on this show, and mm -hmm. I'm going, okay, wait a minute. Right. We're done. Let's keep mm -hmm. looking because now we know this guy's not the guy. Yeah, right. So that should have excluded right. you right off the bat. Now, there's another part of this that's extremely disturbing, which is this same kid, Kevin Johnson, told police that he chased the gunman, which is a crazy thing to do in the first place, right? He chased the gunman outside the building and followed him until he leaped over a fence and escaped, right? So the police knew that the gunman ran, jumped over a fence, and escaped. And later on, they managed to sort of twist this into a whole different narrative where they said that actually they didn't show up till half an hour after the shooting happened, which we know was not true at all. And that therefore, you must have been the guy who ran away, jumped over the fence, and then came back to blend in with the crowd because that would be just the dumbest fucking thing anybody could possibly imagine to do. Knowing that the police must be on their way, you're going to go back and sort of, as they would say, blend in. That's a little bit of a stretch, right? So, Kristen, how did they get, how did they get a conviction? I mean, you would think that there's just not a reasonable person that would believe this story. Yes, there was a gunman who ran out of the room and Jerome was undeniably in the room after the police arrived. And the best witness to who that gunman was explicitly excluded Jerome from the lineup. So it seems pretty clear that Jerome was not the person who did it. After Kevin Johnson excluded Jerome from the photo array, the police had no other leads. I don't know that they were doing much work. They relied at that point on rumors from high school kids. That's what the Crime Stoppers tip was based on. These are all just high school kids spreading rumors. And there were rumors that there were of other people besides Jerome as well. But the rumor that got to the police was Jerome Morgan. And so they put that photo lineup together. He was excluded. And then they had no more leads. And so then that was June 2nd when that photo array was shown. 
and nothing happened in the investigation. I mean, you can look at the police reports and there's really nothing in the police reports between June 2nd until August 22nd, three months after the crime. And based on the police reports and what the jury heard, supposedly, spontaneously, the police just called Hakeem Shabazz, who was one of the kids who was shot that night. He was shot in the abdomen and survived. He was not involved in the fight, but he was trying to break up the fight. And supposedly, the police called him three months after the crime. This is the first time speaking with him. And he just said, Jerome Morgan shot me. And he came in and made a photo identification. So that's the account that the police had. That's what the jury heard. Right. Now, what's what's troubling me a little bit about this is if you were the guy who got shot and you knew who did it, what the fuck would take you so long to come forward with that information? Did you know Shabazz? Well, yeah, he was a familiar face because we attended McDonald's 35 as freshmen together. Right. What happened there, Kristen? <laughs> The, the true story of how Hakeem came to name Jerome Morgan. Mm-hmm. So the truth is, is that Hakeem had no idea who shot him. He, like everyone else in that room, it was a dimly lit ballroom. And when the shots were fired, there was a bright light that came from the gun. No one could see the face of the gunman. Hakeem was in the middle of breaking up a fight. He was in no better position to identify the gunman than other people who were shown photo arrays and couldn't make an identification. So the truth is he didn't know. But in that three months... He heard rumors about Jerome as well. He heard that name being thrown around. And what actually happened was the police called him and, and got him on the phone. And they said, Hakeem, you know, do you know who shot you? And he said, no. And they said, Jerome shot you. So the detective is telling him Jerome shot him. And Hakeem, hearing the same name that he's heard in rumors, thinks, okay, I'll, I'll believe that. He agrees. Okay. And he goes down to the police station and makes an identification and makes a formal statement. So now we have one witness who explicitly says that Jerome Morgan was the gunman. But that's not all. No. So so now at that point, the police arrest Jerome. Eventually arrested me on my mom's birthday uh, that year, 1993, October 7th. I mean, I was arrested, but they didn't get any indictment because it was just one eyewitness. And remember Kevin Johnson that gave a a negative photo ID of me. And so I sat 72 days in uh, Orleans Parish Prison. I had to be released after uh, that time because they didn't get an indictment. And so they non-prossed it, and I was released on uh, December 16, 1993. Okay, so now you're out, right? So this has a lot of twists and turns. Right. But they weren't done. They were going to stick, as we see, Sometimes, and myopic would be a nice way to put it, right? We see this, that once once a lie gets started or a witch hunt or whatever you want to call it, they don't give up easy and they don't like to be proven wrong and they, and they needed somebody, right? They needed to solve this crime. Well, at the time when I was released, I don't think they cared. That, that normal happens. It was a black guy, a young black guy that was killed. So nobody in the, in the DA's office really cares about that sort of thing. It wasn't until the the fatal victim's mom got into the newspaper and got into the news and made attention that nothing is getting done behind my, my son's murder. And so that would cause them to, I guess, uh, try to make like they were doing something to, to appease this parent who was making them look bad in the media about this crime taking place and no one being held accountable. So then it comes back around and... You're eventually rearrested, yes, and brought in for trial. Yes, and I assume you were represented by a public defender. Yes, yes, a contract public defender. But um, how, how that occurrence happened? Uh, the fatal victim's mom went to Kevin Johnson and I guess picked him up and told him that uh, you need to talk to the DA or somebody because uh, the person that is being rumored to have killed my son has been released and we have to do something about it. And Kevin Johnson, just to refresh everybody's memory, was the guy who originally had said that you weren't the guy. Right. He knew you mm-hmm. from grade school. You were not the shooter. But now all of a sudden, his memory's different? Well, yeah. I mean, he's, he's feeling pressure from, you know, his, his best friend, one of his best friend's parents and their family. You know, they have, uh, he had 11 other siblings uh, Clarence Landry did. 
Clarence so, Landry was the, the kid who was killed. Yes. Right. Yes. And so, and the other two friends, Antonio Bradley and Harrison Hogan, they weren't able to make identifications. But, you know, there's a lot of pressure on Kevin because, and then he bared the guilt of going back into the ballroom after the initial skirmish and they left. They were supposedly returning to uh, get a cousin of his from inside the party. But once they went back inside the party, that's when the fight happened and uh, his, best, his best friend was murdered. So Ms. Landry picked up Kevin Johnson from his job. They went to, uh, I think, first the homicide detective office. The homicide uh, detective pointed them to the DA's office so that he could make a statement. And so they say that he, he altered his statement in a way because he's saying the homicide detective misunderstood what he was saying, that he was in shock uh, when he seen my picture. And he said, oh, it can't be like, you know, just. Right, right. Oh, so he went from it can't be to, oh, it can't be. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real, live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's kid-safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. At the trial, there were a number of people who testified on your behalf yes, and yes. said that you never left the room. Yes. But we know that the shooter did. Yes. So yes. that would be pretty strong testimony. Mm -hmm. You testified as well. Yes. And yet you were convicted in a trial that lasted one day. Yeah, and half a day. 
And this is something that is and should be troubling to every, every person, every American. The idea that a trial where the consequences are so profound, literally it's a death sentence. Yes. I've spoken to some exonerees who will say that they would have preferred to be sentenced to death than life without parole. Yes. Because it's death either way. It just yes. takes longer. Mm -hmm. You get to spend the rest of your life in hell and then die. And then die, yes. And yes. then starting off at a, a younger age than maybe a lot of other people have. Yes. It's pretty shocking that the justice system could take such a casual approach to somebody's life. But that's what they do. And down yeah. here in Louisiana, they do it all the time. Yes. So it's almost like a factory process. It's a machine that grinds up the people it's supposed to serve. It leaves the public in a situation in which the actual killer is out there roaming the streets, dangerous as ever. And also, when you think about locking up a 17-year-old person, you're going to spend millions of dollars over the years. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now, it's good for business, right? We yeah. know that there's people mm -hmm. making money right. on yeah. it, but the public is paying for it Yes, through the tax dollars and everything yes. else. Mm -hmm. So the only people making money are the people who provide services for the prison, right? The industries that are associated with the prison, in some cases the sheriffs themselves. And we have a particularly strange situation in this country in some states where sheriffs actually own jails. When you just talk about making money off of incarcerating people, Obviously, there's all the services, but there's the make money off of that system. But there's also the individual men who are at Angola, which is a former slave plantation or a combination of multiple slave plantations, where you've got men working in fields and yeah. to be for money to make off of them. And um, we had at some point requested Jerome's disciplinary record at the prison. This was in the 90s. He was disciplined for not picking cotton fast enough. Okay. Let's just reflect on that for a second. Uh, what century is this? Exactly. <laughs> um, he was disciplined for not picking cotton fast enough. I mean, the images that that conjures up of the worst, you know, the most shameful periods in American history are very real. I mean, it's, it's and this is, this is in the 1990s. It's yeah, today. It was, yeah, I think it was 96 or 97 that occurred. Uh, and the proper word they say it was not enough speed and efficiency. And, and the infraction was a work offense, aggravated work offense. Uh, I, why do I feel like Abe Lincoln is spinning in his grave right now? Okay, so that was your infraction. Among I think many. Among, among many. Amongst many, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So sir. Angola, to paint a picture... It's still a slave plantation, right? It's named Angola because of the fact that it was a slave plantation and the slaves were brought from Angola. Mm -hmm, right. So they named it Angola. Didn't mm -hmm. take a lot of imagination. And it is really a place that's removed from society and is basically free from any sort of oversight as far as I can tell. And what goes on in Angola stays in Angola, right? Right. I call it the silencing of truth. The silencing of truth. What do they pay the uh, the inmates at Angola? Four cents, but you only get two cents. Two cents is automatically put into some savings for you to afford court documents or supposed to be educational things. But usually what they do is save the two cents. So when you get in debt for restitution or any other rule infraction they write you up on, they can take that money that you pay as a fine or a debt to whatever infraction they root you up on. Two cents an hour. Yes. Um, wow. I thought, you know, I, I thought I knew that, but I just didn't want to say it because it sounds too crazy. And I didn't want to say something that was completely crazy because it sounds so crazy that it's crazy, but it's crazy. So, okay. And we know that in Louisiana for second degree murder, there's only one sentence, mm. which is life without parole. LWOP. Yep. There you were, all of a sudden, serving life in prison without parole in what I think many people would say is the worst prison in America, one of the worst in the world. How did you find the fortitude to inner strength, whatever it is, to be able to get through this and to ultimately contact the Innocence Project of New Orleans and continue to fight for your freedom? I mean, I think almost anybody else would have just given up and given in. That's not what happened. I mean, here you are. Somehow or other, you managed to persevere and triumph. I don't know. It's just that 
the one thing I can always remember is that I never thought of myself as just a prisoner, you know, of any kind. I, I was thankful in the sense that I had been exposed to people who believed in freedom. Like I said, the neighborhood I grew up in had a history that I wasn't aware of at the time. But the, the culture and, and, and climate of everyday life then was of just, you know, being self-supportive. You know what I'm saying? Just supporting yourself in a sense of always thinking positive, always knowing that you have enough capability and capacity as anybody else to do what you need to do to make your life a successful one. And so it didn't always seem that easy, but when I was able to kind of like get over my self-pity or whatever, I always revert back to that, that, you know, I am a person, I, I'm blessed to be able to see, hear, smell, I have all my limbs, you know, my heart is beating fine. And so at least I can have an encouraged word for somebody else, and, and in turn, that would encourage me, because that's that's all I wanted for my life to be is, you know, a difference maker to somebody else. Wow. Well, let me ask you this, too. Was there a person or people inside Angola who inspired you to stay strong? And Yeah, it, it was a lot of people in and outside Angola. I didn't know anybody there. I was one of the youngest, probably one of the smallest at the time. And so, you know, there, there was many people, like, I would get written up and go to extended lockdown. That's where I met, I guess, my most influential friends. Because, you know, when you're in solitary confinement on lockdown, you stay in a cell, uh, one man cell for 23 hours a day. It lets you outside of that six by nine cell into another caged area for an hour to take a shower and do exercising or socialize with other guys on a, a tier with you. And so, like you said earlier, I've always been like a mild-mannered person, reserved, you know, in a great sense. And so uh, I, I was then, but I, you couldn't be at that time because you would drive yourself insane just holding all that stuff in. One guy in particular, when I had my first experience on lockdown, that I was able to, you know, converse with, you know, bounce our frustrations off each other and also encourage each other to think positively about what we can do. Which guy was that? Uh, Noel Brooks. Noel Brooks, who's still in Angola. You know, he helped me out a lot and we helped each other out in thinking about ways that we could help ourselves and help others. So that's just one, but, you know, it, there was many. So Kristen, how did this impossible situation eventually get Resolve. How is he sitting here in front of us now? Well, there are three pieces of new information that we learned that really just completely undermined the case against Jerome and proved his innocence. One is that there was a 911 complaint history, which is a document that shows when a 911 call comes in and some of the initial information that comes in from that caller. And it's blocked off by minutes of time. And the 911 complaint history here shows that the call came in from the Howard Johnson's lobby. This is where the, the Sweet 16 party was at a hotel lobby. It was clearly in, in response to seeing Hakeem Shabazz arrive in the lobby shot. And that call came in at 11.30. And the complaint history shows that the police arrived at 11.36, so six minutes later. But the state's theory at trial was that somehow Jerome shot everybody, ran out of the room, jumped over a fence, hit a gun, and then returned to the room full of 80-some-odd witnesses and waited for the police to arrive. And the only information that the jury heard about the timing of the arrival of the police and how possible that would be, that the window of time where a, the gunman theoretically could have returned to this room, as unbelievable as it sounds, was actually from Jerome himself. <laughs> he testified. He was asked uh, how long it took for the police to arrive, and he said 30 to 45 minutes. And um, probably the reason for that is that that's how long it took for the detectives to arrive, not the uniformed officers that came in and sealed the room and made sure no one left or returned. Um, but the, the detectives that actually interacted with the kids arrived 35 minutes after at 12.05 a.m. Um, and so and those are the people he interacted with. So that's probably what he was recalling when he testified to that. And there had been some prior testimony uh, earlier on in the trial that suggested that there was an unusually long gap between the 911 call or between the, the shooting and the police arriving. And so the jury heard this sort of thinking there might have been an unusual circumstance where a crime scene just sat unattended for a long period of time. And theoretically, a gunman 
It's so absurd to say, but the gunman may have returned to the room. So that made it physically possible for him to have potentially have come back. But once we knew that the police had arrived six minutes later and they all testified that they arrived and they sealed the room and no one left after that and no one returned after that, that really changed the state's theory. It undermined the state's theory. The other two pieces of information relate to the witnesses. So the only evidence against Jerome at trial were these two teenage witnesses who testified that they saw him as the gunman. But what we learned was that Hakeem Shabazz first told the police that he did not know who the gunman was and that the police said, Jerome shot you. And then he just agreed only because it was consistent with rumors he had heard, not from what he actually saw that night, but he had just heard some rumors and the police were repeating those rumors back to him. And he's a teenager and he went along with it thinking he was doing the right thing. Kevin Johnson, we know, initially saw the photo array, saw Jerome's familiar face, didn't know Jerome's name, but saw a familiar face and had seen the gunman and excluded him. And the jury did hear that. The jury did hear that. But the jury also heard this explanation that when he said, oh, it can't be him, what he meant was like, oh, I can't believe it was him. That's what the jury heard and that he made a subsequent identification. But what we learned from talking to Kevin was that he was brought back to the police station with Mrs. Landry, with his best friend's mother, the mother of the boy who was killed. And she was upset because she thought that the person who had shot her son had been released from prison. As Jerome mentioned earlier, he's he's under a lot of pressure. He blames himself for the death of Clarence. And so he just goes along with what the police say. The police tell him that he's shown another photo array, a different photo array this time. So the first one was just a set of yearbook photos because police didn't have a photo of Jerome. Second time around, Jerome had been arrested. So they made a second photo array of mugshots. And again, he's shown it. He does the same thing, puts Jerome's photo aside. And they say, who did you say was the gunman? And at that point, Kevin had heard rumors. He had heard the name Jerome Morgan. So he repeats the rumor. He says, Jerome Morgan. But he doesn't realize that the photo that he's putting aside and eliminating is Jerome. So he has a name, but it's separate from the face. And the police say, you sure it's not this guy? Pointing to Jerome's photo. That's Jerome Morgan. And for him, well, he heard, again, it's just like Hakeem. He'd heard these rumors, and now the police are reinforcing these rumors. And so he agrees. And so both of them went and testified at trial believing that they were identifying the right person and not knowing that the police were working off of the same rumors that they were hearing and there was no other evidence behind that at all. So when they testified, it was probably pretty convincing. I wasn't there because they thought that they were doing the right thing and that they were identifying the the gunman when in fact it was all the police telling them. But then fast forward 20 Mm -hmm. years. Yes. And they came clean. Yes. So they didn't know. So again, Jerome gets convicted They are not aware that there is no other evidence. So they go along their lives. And then an investigator from our office talks to each of them separately. And he points out to them, did you know that Jerome was in the room after the shooting? And neither of them knew that. And so once there was a a stain, I don't don't know if that's the right word, but um, something that kind of undermined their confidence that they had, quote unquote, identified the right person, Then they started telling the investigator about how those identifications came to happen. That really undermined their confidence in what they had done. They may have known that they didn't really have a reason behind identifying Jerome, or they may have known even that it really wasn't the right person, but they thought they were doing the right thing. And it wasn't until they learned that the person they identified as the fleeing gunman was in the room after the police arrived that really changed their perspective. And so they came clean They told this true story of how they came to make the identifications. It's not just a recantation. It's really an explanation of of how those identifications happened and what the police did to make those false identifications happen. At some point, the police went to these two witnesses who now are, whether it's their conscience or whether it's this new information that's being provided to them, that they are now being made aware that they were fed lies by the police. 20 years earlier, and that they played a major role in locking Jerome up for the rest of his life based on being misled, is a nice way of putting it. Now, the authorities are really scrambling to protect this conviction, right? And what did they do to these two guys? What did they threaten them with in order to, to try to coerce them into not, not telling the truth? 
Well, both of them, both of these witnesses consulted with attorneys before they signed affidavits and before they provided testimony in our post-conviction hearing. So they knew that there was a possibility of a charge when they chose to get up on the stand and testify. A perjury charge. Yes, perjury charge. But they did. And they withstood direct and cross-examination back and forth. Their stories remain consistent. And based on that, plus the 911 complaint history that shows that timeline, Jerome's conviction was overturned. And so nothing happened to them initially. The state chose to appeal that decision to an intermediate appellate court. And the the appellate court upheld the trial court's decision in a very lengthy, clearly well-thought-out ruling. And after that ruling came down... When it appeared, oh, no, this this granting of post-conviction relief is going to be upheld, the state then chose to charge these two witnesses with perjury. I just think the timing of it is is uh, interesting. It wasn't immediate. If they really cared about protecting people against society, against inconsistent statements, they could have charged them with perjury back when they signed these affidavits. <laughs> but they did it after there was a good signal that the decision to overturn Jerome's conviction was going to be upheld and that there would be a new trial. And we know that there were two lawyers who represented those two guys pro bono, right? Yes. And spent years actually defending them against this evil machine of New Orleans uh, justice uh, or injustice. And ultimately, they prevailed. Another interesting fact that may not, you know, be too noticeable, but at the same time, I don't know how, you know, how it happened in uh, Ford's order, but they did also file to have the judge recused and forced him to recuse himself. And so I, I end up in another section of court with a judge that was pretty, you know, cool with the DA. Yeah, Judge Franz uh, Ziblich. So they wanted to make sure they got a judge who was going to give them the best chance of winning and keeping you in prison. Right. But none of that stuff worked because ultimately you won. What are the names of those two lawyers, by the way? Because I want to give them a shout out for having spent all that time. Jason Williams and Bobby Ortsberg. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O.
Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So, Jerome, when you finally prevailed, what was that like? Because we talked about the misery and the heartbreak of the whole thing. What was it like, the moment when you actually... Did you even believe it was happening? Uh, Yeah, I believed it was happening, but I often describe it as just being overwhelmingly excited. I mean, you envision these things, you know, all those years, and that's what holds you up when you're feeling like you can't make it no more. Give us a picture of the courtroom that day. What were you wearing? What would what did it what time of day was it? Who was in the courtroom with you? How did you react? Uh from the moment that I was released from prison or jail, I also had an ankle bracelet on too. So I still felt incarcerated. But even in that moment, just being outside, smelling the air of society and you know, seeing my friends who were there for me since day one. Being able to see them and hug them and being able to just change into some regular clothes right there in the street. <laughs> it, it just was overwhelmingly exciting. When I exited prison, they didn't have any clothes for me, of course. They didn't keep my clothes for 20 years. But they're supposed to have your clothes that you went into prison with waiting on you when you get out. So I didn't have any clothes there. But you were never supposed to get out. Right. And so uh, they gave me an oversized undershirt and some oversized shorts that looked like pants just to be released with. And so, you know, uh, my family and friends had a few articles of clothing for me to change into once I, once I got out. Uh, Christian met me that evening. It was like 6 o'clock mm-hmm. on the 4th of February, 2014. And so we, we stayed there on, uh, on Dupree Street. Just celebrating, just smiling and hugging and, and you know, just taking in the, the, the new era because it had been a long time coming for all of us. What'd uh, you eat? I wanted Popeyes. <laughs> you know? Popeyes. Yeah, New Orleans fried chicken. You know, in Angola, you don't get any of that. So. Right. I mean, after 20 years of slop, right? how good does food taste? Oh, it tastes wonderful. You know, it, it's, I'm very, you know, uh, <laughs> particular about what I eat, so... uh it makes me feel good that I have options. Yeah, you know? I bet. Because sometimes, you know, you have to go to sleep hungry. You know, a lot of guys return home and have cancer, and that's because of the slop that they eat for so long. And so, uh, you know, you have to kind of monitor that, uh, you know, when you're in prison. And it gets tough because, you know, everybody's family is not well off enough to provide them with money to spend to buy food from, uh, you know, the prison canteen or whatever. Right, and and I'm glad you brought that up because there are a number of cases here in Louisiana, people who were exonerated after decades in prison just came out and died of cancer right. shortly after right. they got out. And right. I think that that has yes. to be a contributing factor. Yes. And and it's also important to highlight, and people are going to listen and say, no, that's not true. Because when I read this, I was like, no, that can't be true. But mm. it is true that in Alabama, they have a program where the sheriffs who own the jails are given an annual budget for food, and whatever's left over, they get to keep. Mm-hmm. Not the sheriff's department, the sheriff themselves. <laughs> so they've been feeding the inmates their corn dogs mm-hmm. all day, every day, because it's the cheapest thing you right, can get. Right. And there's a lawsuit taking place right now. You can't even make this stuff up. And it's just, it's sort of under the radar. And of course, with the current administration that we have, they turn a blind eye to it, or they just endorse it. But on a state level, there are a lot of changes being made. Now, Jerome, I know you've been very outspoken in a very um, thoughtful way about the issues of socialization and compensation. As far as compensation goes, 
there's a crazy range of options depending on what state your wrongful conviction took place in. Louisiana, we know, has the worst criminal justice system in the entire country. <laughs> and as far as that goes, as far as, as far as socialization and compensation are concerned, what does that look like for somebody like you who had their entire, well, 20 years of their life taken away? Well, I mean, in reality, uh, if I use myself as an example, uh, I wouldn't be surprised I'd be in jail tomorrow, you know, behind unpaid bills. I haven't received anything. If anything, I've paid towards the same system. Uh, I pay taxes, you know, because I work for wages that, you know, I'm not even able to afford all of the basic necessities that I would need. I pay for drug testing. I pay bond. I had to pay 12% on a $25,000 bond and, and just, just continual uh, expenses that, that have resulted from my situation. But it, it doesn't look good, and that's why guys don't make it. Some guys uh, result to drug use, alcohol. They have to result to crime sometimes to take care of themselves. And so we still we are still in the fight of uh, getting compensation for myself and also civil action against prosecutor. Socialization is, is, is a struggle because that's one of the, the, the silent killers, social deprivation of guys in prison. I mean, meaning that they don't know how to communicate themselves to others that's not in prison with them because they have been doing that for so long. It's like PTSD, basically. Right. Amongst a fabric that excludes, you know, females, and, you know, with all the other challenges, that's probably the heaviest challenge because, you know, guys are excited now because now they can socialize with females once they get out. But there's no way to transition these guys into doing that in a healthy way. And also people that don't recognize this silent killer kind of misjudge or misunderstand a former incarcerated person's uh, communication towards them. And so it, it just create a whole bunch of confusion. A lot of guys get mixed off in relationships and have to end up going back to jail for domestic reasons, uh, uh, retaliatory reasons of the person that they got into these intimate situations with. And, and it causes a big problem. I, I just try to be reminded of that every day. But being in prison and being able to visit with people that's interning with the Innocence Project and working along with the Innocence Project gave me the opportunity to exercise some social skills that I would need, you know, once I was released. So, so it's actually almost like some crazy through the looking glass insanity that not only haven't you been compensated, but you're paying the state for the privilege of having been locked up for 20 years in Angola. Right. Because you're, I didn't even realize you're paying for drug testing and, and, and the bond. I mean, don't get me started on that. That's a whole mm -hmm. other show. Mm -hmm. That's madness. Mm -hmm. And what we should be doing as a society is providing counseling, psychologists, or whatever appropriate form of treatment. You know, we know a lot of guys that come out have severe mental issues, but we don't. We don't do any of that. You have to sue to get your money. Mm -hmm. And we know that in Louisiana, there's a cap, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that conversation here is, is, is a whole other injustice. Kristen, what is the compensation statute in Louisiana? I mean, I know it again, but I don't, I, I don't even like to say it because I, I hear myself say it and I, I don't even believe myself saying it. Mm -hmm. The Louisiana compensation statute provides for $25,000 per year of wrongful incarceration, but it's capped at $250,000. So it's essentially capped at, at 10 years. I think we have one, maybe two clients who served less than 10 years. Everybody served more than 10 years. Jerome served twice that. Some have served three times that. So you get compensated for just 10 years, and it's only at $25,000. That's paid out in $25,000 increments, and this is all after you get a judgment, which can take years. And then there is something called compensation for loss of life opportunities, and the idea there is to provide some money for education, job skills, training, and medical expenses. But that's set up in such a way there's a theoretical $80,000 pot for that. There's a time limit on using that money. And the way it's set up is that you have to spend the money before you get the money. And so you walk out of prison with nothing. Then you wait 
years to receive that first $25,000 check. And then if you have medical expenses, you're expected to front them before you get reimbursed. And that can take, just the reimbursement can take over a year. It's it's a unfair system. Wow. <laughs> I yeah, think it's, it's, it's fair to say. It's cool. I mean, and it's uh, it's important for people to hear about it, especially from somebody like you, Jerome, who's been through it and is still going through it. It, ne- it seems like it never stops. By the way, I want to say in the Innocence community, which is a, it really is a community, right? There's Innocence Projects all over the country and all over the world. But in that community, the Innocence Project of New Orleans is considered one of the gold standards of innocence work. So you were very fortunate, much more fortunate than probably dozens of guys that you know that are in Angola who who deserve a, a need a break. But yet you get out and you're still facing this incredible mountain to climb. There needs to be a whole paradigm shift. The idea that people like yourselves who have been through no fault of their own ground up by the system and then come out and it's like, you know, you deserve a big fucking hug from society and like a a program, you know, Mm -hmm. no one's saying you should get like the minute you walk out, you should get a mansion and a thing and whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But a fair shake, I think is what most of the guys would want. I I, I would suggest me and, 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 you know, in the spirit of justice that we find ways to put them in position to use that experience positively use those sufferings or whatever they've been through to help somebody else cope through it and not have to fall victim to it. And if we can understand that as a society, then, you know, the money that we worried about for as, you know, this person getting a mansion or an expensive car wouldn't be of a concern because these people will be able to afford those things for themselves as they seem to need them, you know, because you put them in a position where they can make an earn, honest living doing something that could turn whatever they have to heal from and relating it to somebody else and helping them go through it and not end up being a victim of it. That's very well said, and, and I think those words are really important. Before we wrap up, is there any last thoughts that you and about anything that you want to share with the audience? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> but I mean, but the, to be short, the one thing that I would say, kind of like uh, Cap, what I just mentioned about us thinking of justice in that way is that, you know, the, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And I'm speaking of all of us, the people that I know that interested and invested in justice live by faith in the sense that they feel they have the faith that my, my, my good could harm the wrong in the world. And so we have to believe that good will harm the the wrong in the world. And so we have to approach everything with good nature, with good spirit, not manipulative or conniving or deceitful, you know, or or selfish, that we have to to come to the table of life with a faith in goodness, a faith in positivity, faith in growth, a faith in togetherness, a faith in equality, and that's the only way that we're going to live in a peaceful world, then you will see that there has no room for selfishness or any inequality or disparities amongst humanity. Wow. I don't even know what to say. And people who listen know I'm rarely at a loss for words. But all I can say after that is to thank both of you for being here. You've been listening to a special New Orleans edition of Wrongful Conviction. You heard me. And our guests today are Jerome Morgan and Kristen Wenstrom. And thank you both for being here and sharing your story. It's very powerful. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, Jason. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. 
Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.